You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes, a rheumatologist from the Philippines, reporting for Room Now at the virtual ACR 2021. Uveitis is the most frequent extraarticular manifestation of axial spondyloarthritis, presenting as acute anterior uveitis, which may sometimes predate the diagnosis of AXPA. Typically, patients develop a one to two day prodrome of mild unilateral eye discomfort, followed by acute pain, redness, decreased acuity, and photophobia. Attacks can last up to six to 12, up to six to 12 weeks, rather, untreated, and commonly recur in either eye. A longitudinal analysis was performed by Dr. Haluxinakli and colleagues to examine the factors associated with acute anterior uveitis attacks in a cohort of patients with AXPA. Their study was presented during the poster sessions with abstract number 1314. At baseline, patients with a history of uveitis were older, had more peripheral arthritis, higher BASME scores and CRP levels, and concomitant conventional DMARD use. After doing a multivariate analysis, only those with a history of uveitis and higher disease activity as measured by the BASTI were, indeter- were independent determinants of the development of uveitis. This means that a prior history of acute anterior uveitis and active disease are significant predictive factors associated with developing uveitis. What's the important message here? We should regularly inquire about extraarticular symptoms like uveitis when evaluating our patients with AXPA. Identifying uveitis can influence the choice of therapy And when it is suspected, urgent referral to an ophthalmologist is recommended. Follow me on Twitter at Rumarampa and tune into RoomNow.com for more coverage of the ACR Convergence 2021. Thank you. So hi, I'm reporting from Room Now, and I'm reporting at the ACR 2021 Convergence Meeting. And I have with me a, a delightful guest, an all-round, I would say, nice guy, excellent guy, and sort of a renaissance man. So I have with me uh, Dr. Stan Cohen, who was awarded the highest award of the ACR, the gold medal. And uh, I'd like to talk to him about his thoughts. So Stan, it's lovely to have you. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. Thanks for all the kind of words, too. Yes, yeah. Well, they're sincere and heartfelt. I appreciate Um, it. So if you could tell me about where you think rheumatology has been, and then I think just as importantly, where it's going to help, I think, our listeners sort of get inspiration, but also sometimes I think you see a tsunami of ideas and then it trickles out, then another big wave comes. So where do you think we've been and where do you think we're going? Well, I think we're in a good, good place. Uh, you know, when I started 42 years ago, I was with, had gold and penicillamine, which helped very few people. And uh, we were fortunate uh, with methotrexate coming out. And then in 1998, the sea change with targeted therapies with biologics, which has dramatically improved the outcomes for our patients, their quality of life, their length of life, and so forth. And also 
stimulated incredible growth in the field of rheumatology. We had a dearth of really high quality fellows and trainees, but after 98, the field became sexy and interested, interesting. And uh, here we are now with the small molecules, the JAK inhibitors, uh, many new things coming uh, to the forefront in all of our diseases. You know, we went, I went my whole career with one drug for lupus, you know, that, uh, I mean, steroids, hydroxychloroquine, we had off-label drugs. And now we have uh, two new approved drugs the last several years and more to come. So I think rheumatology is in a good place. It's clear from the meeting too. When you see the younger people now presenting, we have developed a whole new generation of clinical researchers, which is phenomenal. We could use more basic people, but that's just a much difficult, difficult road to, to hoe. Uh, and we've got great clinical educators. So I think that uh, the quality of the people in the field is, is improved dramatically. We've dramatically improved patient outcomes. We have one huge unmet need, which is osteoarthritis, which I have and other people have. We need to crack that nut, but uh, we're so much better than we were 30, 40 years ago. So with all this positive talk, and I, I agree, huge breakthroughs, where do you think the challenges are for practicing rheumatologists and the young ones that are training and will have to put up with, um, I guess, the system that we leave them with? You know, the, the, the development of new therapeutics, uh, science is moving forward very rapidly. Delivery of healthcare has never been more difficult. Uh, we're overwhelmed with patients, uh, which is okay. We need to help people. The electronic medical record uh, creates extra work uh, for us. Dealing with third-party players, you, uh, payers in our country, uh, you dealing with government-funded uh, healthcare in your country, uh, it's just become an incredible battle. Um, you know, the whole system is changing in our country. You may be reading about all of the pharmace pharmaceutical pharmacies hiring doctors. So it's going to be the Walgreens doctor, the CVS doctor, just going to be a different uh, way. The physician extenders do a great job. We need more of them who are quality and well-trained, which the college does help, help with that. So I think the delivery of healthcare, the burnout that occurs, it's just very, very hard. It's fine. It's nothing better than being in the room with a patient talking with them. It's when you leave the room and it's all the various and sundry things that you now have to do yourself rather than ancillary people, whether it's because you can't afford to have the ancillary people or the parties to be require you to do it. For, so for example, in our country, now prescribing a narcotic, I have to be the only one personally to prescribe it. I have to go in the system, hit a key fob, check the, uh, make sure they're not getting a prescription for someone else. So another 30 to 45 minutes of work every day that not helping anybody. But, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, usually the cream will rise to the top and people will not continue to put up with this um, forever and ever. And I think uh, hopefully the system will continue to evolve in a positive way. So I think you're giving us a lot of pearls. The administrative burden though, you're right, is giving um, not better healthcare, but at extra hours, um, extra, I think, arguing or fighting on behalf of the patient, which I think we're all willing to do, but not where a drug should be approved, is approved and should be reimbursed. But sometimes reimbursement is random, it seems. So I think you're um, hitting the nail on the head that this is something that um, the newer generation of rheumatologists is going to have to put up with. Any other final parting pearls for our listeners? The, um, you've, you've seen th these rapid changes, um, 
I, I have a question because I don't know when my patient will break through on any treatment, whether it's OA with NSAIDs or SPA on their biologicals or advanced therapies or lupus on multiple immune suppressors or RA or GCA. It just seems that some of our drugs, all good things come to an end, and I don't know why or when or in whom. No, I think that's something we need to understand. Basically, what you're talking about is understanding personalized medicine a little bit better. We're all very jealous of oncology. You know, I'm on an ACR committee that's trying to fund a, a small grant, a million dollar grant for personalized medicine research. You know, we just have failed so far. Uh, we have polygenic diseases probably that relate to the environment. So it's a lot harder. It's not like getting a tumor or cancer cell and looking for markers, but I think uh, science will move forward and we will be able to understand which patients should be treated with which therapies. And I think that'll be a tremendous uh, leap forward. It, it's coming. It's just, you know, sometimes you got to fail a few times before you get there. Fully agree. Well, Stan, wonderful having you and thank you for giving up your time to interview. Follow us at room now. Thank you. I'm Dr. Rachel Tate from West Palm Beach, Florida, and today I would like to discuss abstract number 1713 from ACR Convergence 2021. As rheumatologists, we are often in a position where we are discussing reproductive health with our patients, in particular, the potential for adverse events based on our medications on babies. In this retrospective cohort Canadian study, they focused on the risk of serious infection to offspring of psoriatic arthritis and PSA inflammatory bowel disease patients who had been exposed to TNF inhibitors, vedolizumab, and ustekinumab in utero. So this is kind of great. They included 16,000 offspring born to 7,612 patients who had psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, 8,315 IBD patients, and 188 overlap patients, PSO, psoriatic arthritis, and IBD. There were a total of 52 offspring that were exposed to ustekinumab, 43 for vedolizumab, me, and including seven of those were on combination with TNF inhibitors, 1,500 were exposed to TNF inhibitors alone, 1,800 to non-biologic immunosuppressants, and 12,500 who were unexposed to any drugs. So drug, drug exposure for this particular study was done by infusion procedure codes or filled drug prescription during pregnancies. So 3.8% of offspring exposed in utero to ustekinumab experienced a serious infection. That's compared to 2.7 in the TNF arm, 2.3 in the vedolizumab arm, and 2.6 for the combination vedolizumab and TNF inhibitor arms. Now, this is overall compared to children who were not exposed to any drug during conception and pregnancy, but there did appear to be a potential trend for increased risk with ustekinumab for serious infections. But what I really want to point out to you, and this is very important, is that the confidence intervals were pretty wide and it did cross the null. So for those patients who are exposed to vedolizumab or TNF inhibitors, there didn't appear to be any clear risk in terms of increased risk for serious infections. So in short, ongoing caution should be considered for patients, especially when we're discussing therapeutic options or taking them off of medications um, specifically for biologics that can cross the placenta. But overarchingly for me, it continues to appear that what is best for mama is best for baby. For roomnow.com, I'm Dr. Rachel Tate for virtual ACR Convergence 2021. 
And please follow me on Twitter at UpToTate. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, and I'm reporting from ACR Convergence 2021 for Room Now. I'm here to talk to you today uh, about a poster in uh, Tuesday's poster session. Uh, it was number 1678. Um, it, it was presented by Martin Bors. It is the um, favorable balance of benefit and harm of long-term low-dose prednisolone added to standard treatment in rheumatoid arthritis patients age more than 65, the pragmatic multicenter GLORIA trial. So we're going to call it the GLORIA study from now on. Um, so this was a pragmatic double-blind trial. It was in rheumatoid arthritis patients um, over the age of 65, from mean age of 72 in this study. Um, and what they did was they added two years of treatment with prednisolone five milligrams daily to the standard existing rheumatoid arthritis treatments of these patients. They included 451 patients uh, from seven EU countries. These patients at baseline had meaningful, significant rheumatoid disease. Their DAS was 4.5, HAC 1.2, and 90% of them had joint damage at baseline. So over two years of the study, what was found was that the DAS lowered um, by 0.37 points more in those on steroids. The SHARP score progressed 1.7 points less in people on steroids. And the number needed to treat for a Euler good response was 3.8. The number needed to harm was 9.5, with most of that harm being non-severe infections. So it's a little bit hard to know how to take the results of the study. The improvements in DAS 0.37, that's quite a small improvement. 1.7 in the SHARP score is almost nothing. So we're seeing these statistically significant improvements, but it's hard to know the clinical implications of it. And there certainly is a number needed to harm here. It's 9.5 over the two years of this study. We don't know what happens after that. You think steroids for longer and longer and longer might have more and more and more harms. Um, so I'm not sure I'll be adding uh, steroids, um, even at low doses, um, to my patients over 65. Um, but uh, there is some evidence there that it has at least some benefit um, on disease activity. So log on to Room Now for more information from ACR Convergence and follow me at Richard P.A. Conway on Twitter. Well, hello again. My name is John Giles. I'm an associate professor at Columbia University in uh, New York City. And I'm reporting to you on November the 8th, which is uh, the third day of uh, research presentations at the ACR meeting. One of the big abstract uh, groups this year and one that's gotten a lot of interest is the oral surveillance study, um, uh, specifically uh, abstracts that were presented yesterday and some additional abstracts on the same study are being presented tomorrow. The ones that were presented yesterday was uh, abstract 831 and abstract 958. Uh, these were looking at the primary, uh, uh, the primary data analysis from the trial and also some subgroup analyses. This is, uh, uh, for those of you not familiar with this trial, this is a, a post-marketing uh, safety surveillance uh, trial mandated by the FDA looking at two doses of tofacitinib, five milligrams twice a day, 10 milligrams twice a day, with the comparison arm being a TNF inhibitor, either 
um, adalimumab or etanercept, depending where in the world you were enrolled. And what they found was that the study did not um, uh, meet its non-inferiority uh, endpoint uh, for uh, either major adverse cardiovascular events or for um, malignancies. Um, now, that doesn't mean that the drug is inferior to, to uh, the TNF inhibitor in terms of uh, the safety outcomes. It just means that non-inferiority was not proven. So in the, the presentations from the meeting today allow us to drill down on the data quite a bit and interpret it for ourselves. Um, interestingly, the rates of uh, cardiovascular events were actually quite low in, in all of the arms. And I think that's consistent with the notion that reducing inflammation, especially in the people who were uh, involved in this trial, so the, uh, the inclusions involved it, uh, people who were older, they had to have at least one cardiovascular risk factor. So these patients in some ways were primed to have cardiovascular disease. We know from prior studies that people uh, who take TNF inhibitors actually have a lower risk of, of cardiovascular events over time. That risk is about 30% lower across trials. It's not uniform across trials, but it's fairly consistent um, uh, over time. So we know that TNF inhibitors likely have a powerful protective uh, effect on uh, stabilizing um, uh, unstable coronary plaques, for example. And I think that probably also extends to the uh, JAK inhibitors as well. But these data suggest that there may be something physiologically that's slightly different about that level of protection. And that maybe the TNF inhibitors allow just an additional level of protection against um, those uh, destabilization of the plaques that lead to events. Um, in this particular trial, the number needed to harm or see a differential effect compared with the, uh, the uh, uh, tofacitinib arm compared, arms compared to the TNF arms was in the range of 400 to 500. So you'd have to treat four or 500 uh, people with tofacitinib to see a difference in uh, major adverse cardiovascular event compared with the TNF inhibitor. So again, when we've received a lot of questions from uh, rheumatologists about how to counsel our patients, what we've learned is that it's the patients with the highest uh, cardiovascular risk um, who seem to be susceptible to this differential effect. The risk is small. If our patients are doing well on a JAK inhibitor, I, in my opinion, we should keep them on the drug. Um, it's just that when we're making the decision between uh, uh, an initial treatment uh, between uh, a TNF inhibitor or a JAK inhibitor, especially in patients who have uh, cardiovascular risk factors, if they, we know they have coronary disease, um, if they have any kind of unstable um, cardiovascular disease, then I think this allows us to go down one direction rather than the other. Um, and that uh, when we're uncertain, I think that we should think about our patient's cardiovascular risk level, uh, treat them appropriately. And then in patients who are appropriate for a JAK inhibitor, we should use these and feel very comfortable and, and safe. Uh, we're learning more about uh, these uh, the other Outcomes from this trial, uh, DVT and uh, VTE and PE are being presented tomorrow. The cancer risk uh, and, and other malignancies are being presented tomorrow as well. So more to learn from this very interesting study that's getting a lot of uh, buzz at this meeting. Hi, my name is Akil Sood, reporter for Room Now from Galveston, Texas. 
Today, I want to talk about abstract 1699. Fatigue is a common symptom in many patients with rheumatoid arthritis. This can significantly impact one's quality of life. The symptoms can often persist even in patients with well-controlled disease activity. And this leads me to my question, what are other ways we can manage fatigue in patients with rheumatoid arthritis? As abstract 1699 points out, diet can play a major role. The authors looked at a special diet called the IDIS diet, which is a Mediterranean diet enriched in anti-inflammatory properties. They studied the effect of the anti-inflammatory diet on fatigue and its association with the microbiome and the metabolome. Plasma and stool samples were collected prior to the intervention and two weeks after the intervention. And the results were striking. Close to half of patients reported improvement in symptoms of fatigue. And those that did respond to the dietary intervention, there were also significant changes noted in their microbiome and their plasma samples were enriched with anti-inflammatory compounds. So what can we take away from this study? Diet has a profound impact on improving fatigue in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. So next time your patient's complaining of fatigue, consider bringing food to the table. This is Akhil Sood reporting for RoomNow. For more content, please go to RoomNow.com. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Eric Dine with RoomNow. I'm coming to you from uh, Summit, New Jersey after um, day three of ACR Convergence. And we have with us Ahmad Shravini from University of Manchester. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, and it's, I'll look forward to, yeah, to speak to you more about my, my project and my research. Yes, so Dr. Shrabini just gave a great um, oral abstract today uh, as part of the rheumatoid arthritis abstract sessions. Looking at methotrexate-induced uh, nausea and alopecia and seeing if we can predict which patients are prone to have those side effects. Can you tell us a little bit about your study? Uh, yes, of course. Uh, so methotrexate, although it's been in the market for years now or decades and it's been ex studied extensively, Still, we a lot of questions we don't know and like how to certain people respond or how to certain people will most likely develop certain adverse events. And I think uh, we decided to go with nausea and alopecia here because these are uh, important for the patients. And usually um, physicians focusing mainly in other adverse events such as uh, liver enzymes and hematologic adverse events. So we wanted to address these kind of adverse events that it is important or, or matters for the patient, yeah. So we looked at, so we, my research is on uh, rheumatoid arthritis medication study, which is a big study of around, with around 2000 uh, patients uh, in, in, in the UK. Uh, we looked at the baseline factors uh, at the start of the methotoxate therapy. And uh, we saw if we, these patients uh, are, developing uh, alopecia or nausea at six and uh, at 12 months of therapy. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what were some of the, the factors? I think you had a couple um, interesting associations as, as predictors from the baseline as to who may have the side effects. Uh, yeah, so for example, for nausea, we have like uh, women were more likely to report uh, nausea and alopecia uh, compared to men, although the majority of patients here are because it's rheumatoid arthritis usually is common more common in 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 women more than men so also like we saw an association between alcohol intake or alcohol consumption and and, the, and both also alopecia and nausea 
Uh, it is interesting, but I think this alcohol uh, consumption would need more investigation because we looked at uh, either is, is the patient taking alcohol or not. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be nice to know more in details, like uh, how the amount of alcohol or categorizing alcohol intake as mild or moderate. This kind of question maybe need more investigation to confirm this association and, and its effect on different adverse events. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be interesting, especially being on a medicine like methotrexate that we know irritates the liver. People who are reporting alcohol use, you have to wonder, you know, how much if, are, are these people that are, are really alcohol um, heavy intake and, and, you know, may have a folate deficiency as a result. Yeah, so it's, it's a good thing that it's, so we know that there's some association between alcohol and liver enzymes. So usually physicians recommend uh, or advise controlling alcohol intake or limiting the alcohol. So before starting the treatment. So I think uh, this is maybe emphasizing this point more or, so it's, it's a good advice. Maybe now it's not even, only, it's not only for liver, maybe there is something else here. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a good, so it, I think it's a good point to explore more in the, in the future work and uh, in other studies. And, and um, you know, any plans for the next steps that I, I think it would be really interesting to see you know, um, folate acid, how that's being prescribed or different uh, doses or administration of, of methotrexate. It's like yeah. real world association for the, for the first study. Yeah, right. in our study, there was limited information around the strategies of uh, folic acids. Uh, so there, there, was, there were a lot of variations, especially in the methotrexate dose and the folic acids because it's coming from different centers around the UK. Uh, so and, uh, until now, we don't have like definitive or guidelines, specific guidelines for these kind of stuff. So we see some patients start with low dose methotrexate or high dose and some with small doses of folic acid or daily uh, folic acid again, uh, versus uh, once weekly folic acids. So I think it's, it's, it's a good idea to look at this uh, at, at maybe different time points instead of only baseline. So here, maybe this is the first step of, of more projects coming. So uh, we're gonna look maybe more in details of uh, weekly uh, adverse events and uh, other factors that contribute to this adverse events, including the methotrexate dose, of course, and the folic acid intake and uh, the mode of administration, is it uh, subcutaneous or oral methotrexate? These are all questions. So there's a lot of, yeah, of course, we would like to know, yeah, we always have to balance which factors we want to include or which kind of analysis we want based on our available data or, or, or the quality of data we have. And, and um, the other interesting finding was that um, sounds like patients with a with a, a conception going into it that they have concern about side effects in particular, um, you know, nausea. Yeah, so, yeah, so we found yeah. Yeah, that patients who had more concern about uh, nausea in particular here, uh, so we used uh, some certain questionnaires that were, was validated, validated before in rheumatoid arthritis patients. So and we found that patients who were having more concern at the beginning of the therapy developed more adverse events compared to people who had lower concern. So yeah, this, this is interesting uh, information. And uh, I, I think we should yeah look at this in maybe with different aspects. Uh, yeah, but yeah, as I said before, we have limited, yeah, we, we cannot include different factors in, in, in this model. So we have to limit our choice of, yeah, which one is most relevant here. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, if, if you have any thoughts as to how we should be talking to our patients. We, we want to give them informed consent of the side effects, but maybe not predispose them to be concerned or, or really address the things that can be done. Yes, good question. Yeah, because yeah, so 
uh, I, I'm, I'm totally agree with the yeah, sharing information and uh, making them a part of the decision to start the, when they start with the new treatment. But it's good, yeah, at least now with this data, the prevalence of adverse events and uh, the risk of the adverse events, it's good to give them some reassurance maybe now. So, so for example, alopecia is maybe a concern for a lot of patients, so, but the prevalence is not that high. And I didn't, I didn't include uh, analysis on the severity of alopecia, but not all of them are having a severe alopecia. So maybe sometimes only mild alopecia. So, so some assurance may, may help here in, in making patients more comfortable and alleviating the concern around this treatment. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And you know, everything you presented was, was very interesting and, and very practical in, in um, you know, how we can how we can uh, use it to talk with our patients. So I, I encourage everyone to check out this abstract um, 1444 and lots of great information as we had just touched on the surface here. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Sherbini. Thank you for having me and I'll look forward to speak more in, uh, in the future with more research and more projects. Thank you, thank you very much. Absolutely. A lot more information on Room Now. I encourage everyone to check it out for the remainder of, of the conference. Yeah, and I'm, ahead. I'm a follower, yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs>